Let's pray together. Our Father, we would see Jesus now. We want, oh Lord, how we want to be transformed. We want to be conformed to the likeness of your dear Son. And we know that you do that through your Spirit. As the Spirit works in us and on us and through us by the Word. And so make it live. Make it live, O God. And let us see Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, we've been moving now through our study in 1 Peter. Found this wonderful letter just to be really encouraging. He, he, as we've seen these months now, he's really encouraging his readers. He's, he's telling us that we have been made God's own people. He, it's, it's as if Peter is looking at us today and saying to us, you have been made the very people of God. You have been purchased as his own possession And for a great purpose, and that purpose is that you and I might proclaim his excellencies, that we might publish abroad his his supremacy and his superiority to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. My friends, listen, you and I have been taken hold of by God We have been made his own people for the purpose of making his excellence known to everyone, everywhere, all the time. And that is, to say the least, that is a lofty goal. That is a a, a huge calling. And we might ask exactly how it is that we're to go about doing such a thing. You know, what kind of degree is required for that? How many years of college and university, how, how many years of seminary do you have to get to, to the point where you can say that you are the one who is, who is uh, proclaiming the excellencies of God far and wide? What kind, of, what kind of garb do you have to wear? What kind of robe do you have to wear? Do you got to have a big pointy hat in order to be that kind of, you have to walk around Kids, we say this all the time. You've got to walk around with your hands together and, 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 and sort of this, this holy uh, way. Is that how you proclaim the excellencies of God? What Peter does is he says it's not in those things at all, but rather he points to our everyday kind of experiences. He talks about things like the way you proclaim the excellency of, of God is through your sanctification, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Through living a holy, righteous, God-honoring life. That says something not about you, because it's not about us. It's about Him. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, all the way to the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 12, He tells us the next way that happens. And that's through our submission. And we've been looking at that subject of submission for the past number of weeks. Submission. That's a word that we have lots of problems with. It brings many different thoughts to our minds. But as we've been looking at this, our point is to say this. When we think of the word submission, I want us to think of submission is being in the place that God intends for you to be 
and being the kind of person that God has intended for you to be. And that could be in a number of ways. That could be in the realm of civil government, right? Submitting to civil government. That could be in the realm of the workplace. That could be in the realm of home. Wives submitting to husbands. Husbands submitting to, in the the sense of submitting to and loving their own wives. It can be applied in many different ways. And I want you to remember, as you come to this letter, Peter has a great purpose. You know what he wants to do? He wants to do two things according to chapter 5, verse 12. He wants to be a witness of these things. He wants to be, a, he wants to be offered up as a personal testimony. He says, I, I'm your first-hand witness of these things, and I want to encourage you in this. By my life and by my words, I want to encourage you to stand firm in the faith. To stand firm in the faith, to not let go of this grace that has been brought to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants his readers to remain firm. He's giving his witness to us uh, in order to encourage us to stand firm in our faith. Now, our text this morning, as we continue to work our way through this letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And what I want you to do is I want you to look at verse 8 and notice how he begins this section. He begins in the ESV with one word, finally. That one word, finally, translates a Greek phrase that simply means, uh, and in conclusion. He's, He's bringing a summary of the things to which he has talked about. Now, what you understand is he's not concluding the letter. He has no design on on concluding the letter. But what he is concluding is his discussion. He's wrapping up his thoughts on this topic of submission. Submission as a way in which Christians bring glory to God and thus bring attention to his name. Look at what he says here in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let Him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In our text this morning, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12, Peter, as we've seen, is summing up his thoughts on the subject of submission. He's he's concluding his thoughts on, on this theme of submission. And in order to do that, he gives three points of emphasis. Three points of emphasis emphasis which apply to everyone in the church, which when we understand these things, when we we see these things, they will help us to understand the, the how, the what, and the why of Christian submission. 
three points of emphasis which help us to understand the how, the what, and the why of Christian submission as he kind of wraps it all up. In other words, first two verses, eight and nine, he shows us the attitudes of Christian submission, sort of the, the how, how this goes about, the attitudes of Christian submission. Then the middle of verse nine to a verse 11, he shows us the actions. This is the what, right? The actions of Christian submission, And then verse 12, he shows us why. He gives us the assurance, the assurance of Christian submission. Look with me, if you will, at these attitudes. He lists in verse 8 five adjectives. You know what an adjective is, right? It's a descriptive word. It's describing something. It's describing someone. And these five adjectives he uses to describe the Christian. These are the attitudes of of Christian submission. He's just summing things up now. He's getting ready to move on to the next thought, the next way that you and I might be a cause to publish the excellencies of God in this, in this world filled with lesser gods, but he's not finished yet, and he wants to summarize this, this topic. He wants to summarize the subject, and he shows us the attitudes of Christian submission. He's focusing in on the how. How is it that you get to this point of Christian submission? And you see what he does here. He gives one sweeping word. After he introduces this section with the word finally, or that little phrase, he has just one word, all. In fact, the word is in the plural. I suppose we could say alls. He's he's talking to, remember we said this before, All y'all, every one of you, that one sweeping word, that's it. He's referring to everyone, all of his readers. In other words, he's not just talking about a specific segment of the church. He's not just talking about workers. He's not just talking about uh, 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 residents. He's not just talking about wives or husbands. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the entire church. He's speaking to everyone. So let me begin with a question. Is there anyone to whom these five descriptive terms ought not to apply? Let me be more specific. Can you think of anyone in the church who's exempt from this? Is anyone here able to sit this out? Like you could say, oh, doesn't apply to me. If you do, the, the only way that this would not apply to you is if you're not a Christian. If you are not a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, this really doesn't apply to you. But you say, I am a believer. I know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's talking to you. He's got, you are in his sights this morning. You're in the crosshairs, as it were, this morning for this message, for Peter's words. He describes this, he gives this descriptive attitude of the local church as a whole. All y'all are, what does he say? To have unity of mind. What is the first adjective? It's the adjective we might call, or it's, it's, it's what we might refer to as unity. We are to be united. Now, if you have a New American Standard, you have something like harmonious or being in harmony. And that's really the idea. He's speaking to the church like a conductor would speak to a great orchestra. There are many different people 
who have many different functions, but they are united together. They're working together. I mean, the oboe player has an important part. The the percussionist has an important part. The flautist has an important part. The string section has an important part. I mean, even the, the cowbell guy has an important part in this orchestra. He's not saying that we're to have the same opinions. That's not what he's saying when he talks about this harmony, this unity within the church, but he's describing an attitude. He's describing the character trait of the church. One of the most helpful commentators on this and and, and on many of his books, a, a guy by the name of Edmund Hebert, and he said this, the oneness called for by that adjective, listen, is an inner unity of sentiment and disposition aim or purpose he says it's a unity of heart because of a similar experience that's what he's talking about not share the same opinions not everyone dressed the same way he's talking about a unity of heart it's the same thing that paul had in mind when he addressed the philippians in philippians chapter 1 verse 27 and 28 listen to what he said only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of christ So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now listen, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the point. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. It's like they're joined together as a team, striving side by side. No matter what the opponents do, they keep their focus on the main thing. He, he called for the mind of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Remember, don't look out for your own interests, but I'll look out for the interests of others. No one is supposed to be looking for their own gratification Not one of us are looking for our own acclamation. None of us are seeking to please ourselves. But rather there is this sense in which we are so united that we have this harmony, the harmony of our hearts beating together as one. That's the symphony of unity within the local church. You might say, well, what is it that unifies us? What is it that brings us together. What is it that the church is unified around? Listen, it is this. It is the broadcasting far and wide, the far and wide broadcasting of the excellence of our God. That's what we're all set on. That's what unites us. If if we're all like radios, we're all tuned to the same channel. And that channel is the excellence of God, the supremacy, the superiority of God. That's the mind of Christ. And that's what Peter lists as the first uh, uh, um, attitude of the church. And that's where submission fits in. That's where submission fits in in this local assembly. We're all volunteering as servants of Christ in this age, and we're not seeking ourselves. We submit ourselves to the great purpose. That's the place God has for us. That's the place where God has put us. And we're not trying to shirk that. We're not trying to work our way outside of that. That's the kind of people that he has called for us to be. I love Ephesians chapter 4. We, we, we have been given. We have been gifted by virtue of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been gifted the unity of the Spirit. And you know what Paul tells us in Ephesians 4? 
We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. How? With not just some humility, but with all humility and all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in in love. He talks in Ephesians 4 about this idea that, that we serve God as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we all have our place, we all have our calling in the church. We are united in faith, we are united in function, uh, we are united in fellowship. Would you just take your Bibles and turn with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 4? Because I really want you to see how Paul wraps this up and, and the picture that he gives I want you to see the, the, the goal, the, the final goal that he gives for this, this church, this united church. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. And I think this just really paints this, 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 this vivid picture for us of the real local church. Here's what it is. Rather, verse 15 of Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what our body here is to look like. You're not here as a spectator this morning. You're not here as a spectator, as if I'm going to go watch ministry take place. You put my coin in the, the jar and now, you know, turn the knob and I'm going to watch ministry take place. No, actually, as a Christian, you are actually not to watch the work of ministry. You're to do it. You're to do the work of ministry. That's, just, that's describing each of us. And, and, and what is the work of ministry? He describes the work of ministry as each of us speaking the truth in what? In love. And typically when we hear that, speak the truth, we've got to speak the truth in love. We think in terms of a confrontation. Well, every once in a while, I've got to you know, come up and bring the, the business. I've got to really give it to them. You know? But that's not, he's not, not talking about confrontation. But this is the moment by moment, day to day, moment by moment, speaking to one another, speaking the truth to one another. That's the work of ministry that you and I are called to. How do we do that? That's one of the reasons we gather. Do you remember back in, and and we're not going to get finished today, I already see, but uh, you remember when we start, first started hearing about COVID, right? Everybody's talking about this, and then we're saying, and, and a number of us really got upset, and I think rightly so. Well, a number of us really got upset when we were told that Walmart was essential, but what? The church wasn't. And we got pretty upset about that. And we're like, how dare you tell us that we're not essential? We ought to be good. And there was this great pull. I mean, do you remember? We were meeting outside. We filled outside. There were, there were kids sitting in the trees. We came, we we're going to have two services. And everybody came to both services. We tried to get everybody. And then slowly by slowly, you know what happened with a lot of us? It became less and less essential. In our minds. 
And, and in our practice, we just started slipping and started, well, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going gonna, gonna to miss the fellowship. Ah, you know what? I won't be there for a couple, but I'll be back or whatever. It became less and less essential. What makes the church essential? What makes the church essential? And, and I'm on a soapbox right now. I know. I'm going to get off in a minute. But what makes the church essential is not that the church does some things that the government doesn't have to do. We provide some services so that the government has. That's not what makes the church essential. What makes the church essential is its branding. What is the branding of the church? God says, you are my people, you are my possession, and you're called out for my fame. What makes the church essential is the purpose of the church to call out, to proclaim the excellency of Christ. And the way we do that is in our unity our harmony. And in our unity, in our harmony, we are coming together. And what are we doing? We're each speaking the truth in love. And we do that as we gather together corporately. We do that in our singing. We do that in our praying. Listen, we do that in the reading of scripture. We do that in our moment by moment encouragement. Individually, what do we do? We spend time getting into discipleship relationships with each other where we hold one another accountable. And we're not just, not just confrontation, but it's the day-to-day, moment-by-moment, text message, phone call. Hey, let's meet together for, for coffee. Let's go to breakfast. Let's eat some pancakes together and talk about the work of ministry. Let's encourage one another to stay true to Christ. That's the ministry to which we are called. And that's essential. Because that's exactly what will proclaim to a, to a world filled with lesser gods exactly how superior the one true God is. And that's why he has ordained the church. We have this attitude of unity where we're united together for this great purpose. And, and, and Paul says that when this is happening, you know, what, you know what is the impact of this unity in Ephesians 4? Maturity. The church growing up and not being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Why are we not tossed about by every wind of doctrine? Because we're bonded together. We've been speaking the truth together in love. It's not just my job to speak the truth in love. <laughs> it's us together as the church. Right? And, and when that happens, we bind ourselves together. And it becomes really difficult to begin to toss that thing around where that church is 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 binded together, is bound together in Christ around the truth. And so we have this attitude of unity, this attitude of harmony where we're working together for this great cause, for the glory of Christ. Let me go to the second uh, adjective that he gives here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, and then he says sympathy. Sympathy. Our united spiritual mind is now becomes expressed in united spiritual emotions. In other words, when someone weeps, what do we do? We weep. When someone rejoices, what do we do? We rejoice. That's the beauty of the local church. And that is really where we begin to see the excellence of God put on full display. There is to be this overriding sense of sympathy. You know what sympathy is, right? In case you didn't, I looked up the dictionary definition. And it says this. Feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. 
or an understanding between people. It is a common feeling. Someone lost in their sin? Then we, as the church, have a deep-seated sorrow because we know what it is to be lost. And we know the joy of being found. Is one grieving? Then the church grieves as though each individual one is somehow touched by that, that grief. It's always going through this. I well remember some years ago experiencing a point of great heartache and heartbreak in our own life. And I was kneeling right there in prayer. And, and I was amazed to find that when I stood up, there were people gathered around me. One man in particular, his images blazed in my face. He was there with tears streaming down his face. And he wrapped his arms around me and said, I'm praying for you. That kind of sympathy. That's... That's the governing attitude of the church. Not just unity, but sympathy. And then this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. This is, this is the attitude of affection. Now, what's interesting is we see this term, or, or we see these words, brotherly love, throughout our English translation. But the adjective, it's just, as it's used here, this is the only place in the New Testament that this particular adjective is used. And it is a reference to the bond of a spiritual family united in Christ. Our spiritual unity, spiritual emotions, spiritual family. John Calvin said, Where God is known as Father, there and only there brotherhood exists. Where there is brotherly love, where there is this affection, this warm-hearted relational affection for one another. Think about it. There's no drudgery. There's no such thing as a burden. There's only glad-hearted service, selfless sacrifice. And when I think of that, when I think of this, this affection, this tender-hearted affection and, and that, that does not, that is incapable of being burdened, Some of you will remember this. Back in 1969, the group The Hollies had their worldwide smash hit. And for those of you who think that the 1960s were 7,000 years ago, here's what he said. The road is long with many a winding turn that leads us to who knows where. Who knows where? But I'm strong. I'm strong enough to carry him. Why? He ain't heavy. Why? He's my brother. Kids, you ought to listen to that. That's good stuff. Apparently, that song is traced back to a boy named Howard Loomis, who was an orphan in 1918. Howard had been struck by polio and had to wear heavy braces on his leg. Walking was difficult for him, and it was almost impossible for him to go up or down the stairs at the orphanage where he was being raised. But several of the older boys at the orphanage would take their turns carrying him up and down the stairs. And one day, one of the older boys named Reuben, who was carrying him, was asked if Howard was heavy, and he said, No, sir. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. And that's the way the church thinks about one another. That's why, that's why we can't wait to get together. That's why we spend time not only corporately gathered, but then we spend time with individuals. We're building one another up in love. That's the attitude of the church. And can you imagine... Can you imagine how such a local church would appear to the world? Could you imagine if people didn't have to go to the bar to think that they mattered? 
But if they could come to the church and find the camaraderie and love and fellowship of like-minded faith, unity, sympathy, affection, and then he says a tender heart. A tender heart. That's compassion. The word is a word that refers to an active compassion. It refers to a it's actually used to speak of, uh, you know, when somebody might say, well, they feel the butterflies in their stomach, they feel it down deep in their soul. It refers to a powerful inner kind of feeling caused by the needs of others. There is in the local church a deep and abiding sensitivity to the needs of the others. That's the attitude of the church. Why? Because we're in a position of submission. We're in a place where God is intended for us, with the kind of people that God intends for us to be. We're not out for ourselves. We're not trying to give a piece of my mind, trying to get some accolade for self. No, this, friends, seriously, this seriously publishes the greatness of God. Someone so great and someone so grand, someone so far superior and supreme that would cause us to subject ourselves to a compassionate activity. That's the church. And that's the kind of attitude that governs us. And that's exactly how the world says, your God must be really someone special. Then, lastly, the last adjective, and a humble mind, that, that's, that's humility. Humility. Someone once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. Again, to quote uh, D. Edmund Hebert, he said, the adjective humble is not used elsewhere in the New Testament, but it is appropriate in the concluding exhortation in a series that has called for submission, since it marks the inner attitude of those who are voluntarily submissive to authority over them. He says it is the opposite of haughty and high-minded. It does not brag about self. It does not push self. It rejoices over the successes of others. That's the attitude of the church. Where there's this willing subjection for the good of others, for the glory of God. Wow. All of these attitudes... All of them are meant to sum up the ways in which we who have been called out of darkness proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. In other words, our most direct and clearest way that we have to demonstrate the superiority of God in this world in a world filled with lesser gods is not to start a protest. It's not to boycott something or someone. But I'll tell you, the greatest way that we have to turn the eyes of the world to the supremacy of our God is to demonstrate a united, kind-hearted, humble, and sympathetic love before one another in the local church. That sings of supremacy. That sings of supremacy. I, I think we can probably finish this today, and, and I actually need time and a half this week anyway, pay, so I might just go a little bit over time. And let me show you, move from the attitudes of Christian submission to the actions 
of Christian submission. This is really clear, and I'll just, I'll just run over this quickly. The actions of Christian submission. As we develop those attitudes, we are then prepared for the actions that he calls us to, actions of submission. And, and he points out two particular things. One, he points out what we're to stop. And two, he points out what we're to start. What do we stop? Well, verse 9. Do not, or literally stop, repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Look down in verse, in the middle of verse 10 as he quotes from Psalm 34. Keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. This is written in a way that Peter's saying, now, if this is happening, stop it. And if it's not happening, make sure you don't start. Stop it if it is happening. And if it's not happening, then just make sure you never start it. We have to understand something, friends, that God is working in our lives and God is working through our lives to bring glory to himself. Therefore, the Christian is not one who is actively engaged in the activity of revenge. The Christian is not actively engaged in the activity of reviling. No, he says, stop that. It's basically this. A Christian's not really stressed out by the things that are going on around him or the things that are going on or being enacted on him. We're not worried about getting our pound of flesh, as it were. This is to say nothing of giving matters over to the proper authorities. We're not talking about that. He is not calling for passivism here. That's a different thing. But he has the idea here. It's the action which is based on the heart. If we see in us a heart that is longing for vengeance, I'm going to get mine. He's going to get what's coming to him. If that's your normal response to things, kind of your teeth gritted, that kind of thing, knock it off. Stop it. Right? Then he quotes, he describes what is to be stopped here when he quotes Psalm 34. Uh, Peter loves this psalm. He's already referenced it in the letter earlier in chapter 2. Verse 3, it's a psalm where David acted foolishly, sought for um, refuge amongst the, in Gath of the Philistines, and, and then he realized the trouble that he had gotten himself into, and then he, had, he went around pretending that he was mad, and he tried to save himself in that way. And, and it's a really personal letter, or personal lesson for Peter himself. You see, he, was, he knew what it was to be by that fire warming himself on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He was there participating, and, and, and he even began to curse, saying, I don't know him, using deceptive speech. This is a really big thing for him. And he says, don't do that. Don't seek to get your revenge. Don't try to fit in with the world. And then he shows us what to start. Instead of reviling, instead of seeking revenge, what are we to do? He says, we are to bless. Why? Because you're called to this. You're called to this very thing. Those who are speaking evil of us, we're to speak well of them. Those who are seeking our harm, we're to seek their good. I don't mean that we lie about them. No, but we're seeking their ultimate good. Praying for those. Praying for those who persecute us. That's a position of submission. How can we bless them? We can can bless them by forgiving them. Someone long ago wrote... Revenge indeed seems often sweet to men, but oh, 
It is only a sugared poison. It is only a sugared poison. He said, forgiving, enduring love alone is sweet and blissful and enjoys peace and the consciousness of God's favor. I remember reading the story. Many of you heard this story before about a man who lived. He was 86 years old. He lived back in AD 150, around AD 155 in a place called Smyrna in Asia Minor. His name was Polycarp. And because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he refused to, to bow the knee to Caesar, because he refused to worship Caesar, the Roman authorities were, 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 were pursuing him. They were seeking to arrest him. And as the story goes, when the authorities got to the farmhouse where he was staying, instead of running anymore, he turned and welcomed them as he was welcoming a friend, had drink prepared for them and food, and requested only that he be allowed to pray for one hour. Well, they allowed him that as they were eating, and as they were eating, they could hear him praying, and that one hour turned into two hours. They could hear this godly man praying, praying, praying. Finally, when he was arrested, he was taken before the Roman authorities, and he was given opportunity to to reject Christ, to turn from Christ, and to... to, to, uh, Uh, worship Caesar, and he refused. And they said, if you refuse again, we're going to bring the wild animals. And he said, bring them, that's okay. And they said, well, do this now, or if you don't, we're going to burn you at the stake. And he said... He said to them, look, look the, the flame that you are facing will be hotter and more devastating than mine. And he, he began to, to call them to repent, to turn to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was ultimately burned at the stake. And as the story goes, had to be, had to be uh, uh, killed by a Roman sword. And, but the point is this, that he did not seek his pound of flesh. He wasn't out for vengeance. He wasn't about reviling. He saw himself as being a tool in the hand of God to say something about the supremacy of his maker. Those are the actions. What we stop and what we start. Instead of pursuing evil, we pursue peace. He, He quotes... Psalm 34, and he says, basically, this, this is the good life. I, I remember years ago, a commercial for, for beer that says, this is the high life. You know, if you, if you drink this, you'll be living high on the hog. You'll really be getting something. And, and that was, there was nothing close to that. You know, nothing close to that. This is the real good life. This is the godly life, he says. Not pursuing vengeance, but pursuing peace and, and righteousness. And godliness. And then if I can just quickly show you this. You know, he says, you're called to bless so that you may obtain a blessing. What is that blessing? That blessing is, is enumerated for us in, chapter, or in verse 12. He, he speaks of here the assurance of Christian submission. What is the, the promise? What is the assurance that he gives? Look, just look to God. Look at God's eyes, look at God's ears, and look at God's face. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Why? What is this that keeps motivating our Christian submission? The eyes of God. The eyes of God are on the righteous. Listen, that's what David learned. God is watching 
God is watching. You have a Father in heaven who sees and who knows. He's not just, but He's not just aware of something as if He's sort of holding you at arm's distance. He is intimately involved with and intimately seeing exactly what you're dealing with and exactly what you're going through. Look to God's eyes. Look to God's ears. He says His ears are open to their prayer. Remember what He said to the husband back in 1 Peter 3, 7? Do these things so that your prayers not be what? Not be hindered. He says here, the ears of God are open to you, dear one. You can be in the place that God intends for you to be and be the kind of person that God intends for you to be because that's the exact kind of person God listens to in his prayer. You say, oh, I've been praying for a long, long time. Yeah, that's exactly right. You pray for a long, long time. And longer still, longer still, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day in the mind of eternal, of eternal God. Look at the eyes of God. Look at the ears of God. Look at the face of God. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God sets His face against the evil. You don't have to seek vengeance. I don't have to seek vengeance. Why? Because God's face is set against the ungodly. God, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Let them do what they may. Let them do what they may. God set His face against the unrighteous. You you, you say you have a hard time being submissive. That is to say, you have a hard time being in the place that God has for you being the kind of person that God has called for you to be, well, that's because you need to stop looking at yourself and start looking to Him. Look at His eyes. Look at His ears. Look at His face. Stop looking to your own strength. Go to the Word. Find the self-revelation of God. And with this, Peter in one way, wraps up this subject of submission and introduces us to the next subject, the next way that that Christians in this world publish the greatness of God. And and it's through our suffering. And so we might say, well, I'm finally glad we're through with that submission subject. Let's get on to something a little more encouraging to which Peter says, okay, let's talk about suffering. And that's where we'll be next week. My, my question, I suppose, for us today is I think about what, what kind of application we ought to draw for this. I, I was thinking this week and, and even preparing this morning, thinking, you know, I, certainly we need to, need to be much in prayer. Praying, God, would you do this in my life? God, would you do this in our church? God, give us this kind of attitude. Lead us in these kind of actions. God, give us this assurance over and over and over again. But then I realized, you know, it's not just praying. It is that. And I don't mean just praying. I didn't say that right. It's not. We pray, and in addition to our prayers, what do we do? We participate together. We try to encourage each other. We ought to be reminding each other of these things. Coming together. And I, I said earlier, 
whether it's a text, it's a phone call, you meet together regularly, find someone, find another brother or sister in Christ and say, come on, let's begin this kind of relationship where we participate together strictly for the purpose of encouraging and exhorting one another on to this kind of life, to to be in the place God wants us to be and the kind of people God intends for us to be. Participate together in these things Friends, don't just think that you come as part of the church and you are a spectator. You are the church. And he has given you this call. Speak of his greatness far and wide. Through your sanctification. Through your submission. Through your suffering. And we'll find out in a couple months also through your serving. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving you thanks for your kindness to us, giving you thanks for calling us out of darkness and how we would long to be useful in your hands praying that you would continue to do your work in us and through us, that we would be much less concerned about self, much more given to the glory of God, to the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not to be seeking vengeance, not to try to to make our own way, keeping our eyes on you. We know that that's what we've been called to. And that that calling comes with an incredible blessing. A blessing of knowing right now. Right now, no matter our trials and no matter our struggles, no matter the sorrows, that you're watching. And you, Almighty God, are listening. You, Almighty God, your face is set against those who would seek to persecute us and and to do us wrong. So we can say, What will man do to me? We just trust you and ask that you'll take these things and allow these things in our lives to publish abroad your greatness in this world filled with lesser gods. We pray this in Jesus' name and together all God's people said, amen.